0: Welcome to the Redeemer Community Church podcast. The following audio is from Redeemer Community Church, located in Johnson City, Tennessee. We hope it will be encouraging to you as you listen. Corinthians chapter one, and we'll make our way into chapter two. Um, If you would, let's let's bow our heads for a for a moment of prayer. God, you are an amazing Father, and you continue to draw people to yourself, um, to rescue us, and to move people um, from from these positions where we're just spiritually dead and hopeless. And and you, God, you bring us back to life and make us these beautiful new creations. And God, we know that you see us as perfect before you, but that's not exactly what we're seeing right now. And, and God, we're, we're a work in progress and you promised to bring to completion what you started. And so God, we long for the day that that we'll see ourselves as you do. And God, we know one of the ways you, you work on us is through the preaching of your word. So God, as we look to your word today, we ask that it would chip away um, at the worldliness that holds, uh, that tries to grip our lives and that it would, that would loose its grip and that we would run to you. Um, even when things don't exactly make sense to the world around us, God, give us a hope that rests in how you're at work. That's your name that we pray. If you, if you could change or make an adjustment to one thing in Christianity that would make it easier for you to talk about your faith, um, what would it be? If there's one thing that you're like, this is just where things always seem to get a little awkward when we start talking about blood or whatever it might be, if there's one thing that you could say, like, I just wish that God would have done this differently or I wish that I could change this part of the story because if that was different, then it would be a little bit easier to, to talk about my faith. Do you have any of those things? you like, this, do we really believe that? Uh, when I was in college, I watched a lot of Comedy Central and, um, and with that, I also watched a lot of South Park. Now, I'm not proud of that I don't condone that. I don't encourage you to do that. Um, I'm not saying that's a, that's a good path, but I did it as part of my story. And um, but there was one particular episode where they built the whole show around Joseph Smith and the founding of the Mormon church. And, um, and it was hilarious. It was, it was actually somewhat accurate. And so And so after watching that, one of my buddies goes, Mormons believe some crazy things. And I remember hearing that and immediately thinking, so do we, like, like, if you're not a Christian and you're on the outside looking in and you're weighing like what Mormons believe and what Christians believe, you're probably not going like, well, yeah, that's totally possible. These guys are crazy. You're probably thinking you're both crazy, right? Like there's, there are things that we hold on to, things that we believe that the world looks at and thinks that is ridiculous, Right? And so with that, there's this temptation to take the gospel and to to adjust it, to tweak it, or to make it where it's more appealing or more acceptable in the culture that we live in, all right? And so that's a temptation we deal with today, and it's a temptation that those in Corinth were dealing with as well, all right? So last week, we saw how Paul has a high value on unity, Unity is an important thing for the church to be an expression of of Christ in the world. If we're gonna be a powerful expression of Christ in the world, we need to be unified. But unity isn't ultimate. You see, we're not called to unify despite the truth, but to unify around the truth. And so what we see is that the mission is the gospel. And when we run after that together, the byproduct is that we will find ourselves unified, Alright, So Paul's picking up on that thought. The mission is the, the gospel and the byproduct is unity. The problem that we're going to see though is that the Corinthians are tempted to adjust the message of the gospel in hopes of it being more acceptable or more attractive to the culture they're in. So let's pick up in chapter one, verse 18. It says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. All right. And so what's happening here? is the Corinthians are are desiring for their faith to be respected in culture, right? So in culture, they have their faith, what they believe, and their hope is that what they believe would be respected in their culture. But in a culture where people are aiming to be smart, where, where intellect has a has a high value, and where people are aiming to be powerful, right? This message of a of a suffering servant as our Messiah seems weak and foolish. Right, So there's this, this struggle here. There's this tension of, of I want to be respected, but when I talk about who Jesus is and what he's done, people respond by seeing my savior as weak. They look at me and believe that I'm foolish and I, and I want to be strong. I want to be smart. So, so what do we do with that? So there's this temptation to tweak the gospel, whether that's adding to it or taking it away from it. Um, I remember a, a couple of years ago, there was this hailstorm and, um, and my neighbor got a new roof. And, and the thing is, is that they didn't make an insurance claim. What happened is the other neighbor, right, next to them, uh, basically, they made an insurance claim. They're getting a new roof, but the company showed up to the wrong house. And they just get on the roof. They start ripping stuff off. And, and he shows up halfway through this job. And he's like, what are they, what are these men doing to my house? And it turns out, wrong house. But with that, they had to make up for the mistake. And so what did he get? A new roof. All right? And, and so, but the truth is, is that his roof was doing just fine. No one needed to come in there and tear stuff up and lay new stuff down. And, and so the same thing is true of Christianity. We don't need a new roof. Like we've been doing fine for, for 2,000 years. And so when we come in and think that, well, I'll remove this, I'll put this new thing down. If you think you're adding value to your faith, you're not. The truth is, is you're actually devaluing it and robbing it of the power it was meant to have. And so Paul looks at the gospel and he says, look, God works in unexpected ways and does unexpecting things. And people are going to respond differently to that. right, so this kind of gives us a a peek into like, how should you expect people to respond to your faith? And he says, there's two types of responses. Some people hear this, what seems ridiculous, and they turn to God and find life. Others are going to hear this and think that is that's crazy and they're gonna turn away from God and they're gonna head down a path that leads to eternal perishing. So people are gonna respond to this message in one of two ways, but just because some people don't respond favorably doesn't mean we come in and make adjustments. This is a plea for us to hold tightly to the truthfulness of Christ and what he did for us. Look at verse 20, he says, "'Where is the one who is wise?' Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe, right? Sometimes when we see people that we hold in, in really high um, intellectual esteem, when you look at people like this person is really smart, They've got a lot of degrees. They've got a lot of letters after their names, like look at what they've accomplished in life. It's really easy to look at that and to see how do they respond to Christianity? And sometimes when people that we look at is is very intellectual, is is very smart and established in education, we look to them and see that, well, if this person who's so smart um, has has reason to not believe in the truthfulness of Christ, then, then am I off on this? I mean, if, if the smartest people aren't believing this, then, then am, am I dumb for believing it? And so it's really easy to, to look at that and to think, well, like, how could the smart people not agree with this? And, and the truth is, is that there are intellectuals on both sides of the equation, all right? Like, Christianity is not filled with just idiots that are like, I don't know. Like, it's like we, we have smart people that are thinking through this. Our faith is one that has reason to it, right? Like, while like, well, I said earlier that Mormons believe some crazy things, but so do we. The, the good news is that what we believe is crazy was actually done in public for people to test and has witnesses to it. It's not just one person in the woods saying, believe me. So, like our faith has reason to it. And there are people who have thought through that. But what he's showing here is that when people have a worldly wisdom, right? When people that we look up to and see as intellectually established, this worldly wisdom, he says, if their hope is in the world, they have this assumption, right? They, they kind of have this, this bent that says, we don't need God and we're fine without him, right? So there's this mindset, this worldly wisdom says, we don't need God, we're fine without him. And so with that, there's this thinking that says, if there's a problem, we can fix it, right? When you think that I don't need God, I'm fine without him, you think that if there's a problem, you can fix it. So the solution to the world's problems ultimately lies in us and what we can do. Right, So think about it. Just, just an example would be, um, I'm seeing hats pop up around Johnson City that that look like the Trump hat, but they're green. And they say, make America green again, right? So make America green again. There's the hope. What's the problem? Pollution, right? And so, so you look at the world and say, okay... God has given us this world to care for, um, but people have overused and abused it. And so now things are not as they should be. So we've broken this thing. And the hope is, well, if we could get people, like we're the the solution. So if we can get people to recycle, to reduce and reuse, then we can make America green again. But how many of us really believe that's going to happen? Right, we know if the if the solution lies in ourself that we're going to fail. And so when it says that God has made the wisdom of the world foolish, He's saying that history should be our lesson that that when it when it leans in on us and our human nature, like even our best intentions have potential to cause great harm. At the end of the day, like us being the solution, always ends badly. God has made that foolish. But when you, when you preach the gospel and tell people, look, you're not all right, you're not fine, you need Jesus. And when people respond to that by saying, I, I, I think you're right. Like I am hopeless, and I am broken, I, I know I can't fix this thing. He says, when people believe that, it pleases God to save them. Look at verses 22 through 25. He says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. All right, in Corinth, two of the biggest ethnic groups that would have made up the town were, were Jews and Gentiles. All right, and so so when he says that that Jews were demanding signs and Greeks were seeking wisdom, he's he saying, Look, like they had their own stumbling blocks. They they had their own things that were holding them up from, from putting their faith in Christ. And so for the Jews their response was, Well, God, if you're real, show me a sign. Or if you're real, prove it. Right? And it's not that Jesus didn't perform miracles and show signs and prove that he was who he said he was. It's just that it didn't work out how they wanted it to work out. So they had these ideas of God's going to perform miracles that are going to reestablish Israel to a a place of prominence. And so if a Messiah comes in and does miracles that makes Israel great again, then we know he's real. He performed signs and miracles, but it wasn't what they wanted, right? So they placed themselves as like, God's going to meet us on our terms. And if he doesn't meet us on our terms, then he must not be real. So the Jews were looking for God to prove himself. When it says that the Greeks... Um, it says, it's, when you look at the Greeks and what, what they were demanding, they're, they're seeking wisdom. It's saying that for them, they're, they're looking at God saying, if you're real, then answer all of my questions. If you're real, then help me to make sense of the world. Let this this puzzle and the complexity of the world make sense. And so unless you make all of my answers, um, if you resolve them and, and give me ease in believing that, then I don't know if you're real. And so, so for them, the stumbling block was, Wisdom. They wanted God to answer all these questions, but both of these groups, whether it's God prove yourself or God answer all of my questions at the end of the day, they're placing themselves as the one who has God answering to them. And Paul says, this is, this is arrogance. It's arrogant to think that creation would place God in a position where God answers to us. The truth is, is that if we are his creation, we answer to him. We don't have the right to to demand for God to meet us and prove himself on our terms. All right, so, so think about this. If, if these were stumbling blocks for them, right, God prove it or God answer all of my questions, what do you think are some of our stumbling blocks? What are some things, when you're thinking about why people would look at Christianity and say, I think that's foolish um, or, or I can't put my faith in that, that seems ridiculous, what are some things that you think are holding people up? When I think about the, the, the people who want a sign, right? God, prove it. I think our modern day sign stumbling block is, why is there so much evil in the world? I mean, if, if God is good and if God's all powerful, then why doesn't he just remove of this junk and all of this darkness. And so we, we long for that to take place, right? And so for us, that, that becomes a stumbling block. The fact that the world's just not as we think it should be or what's, what's our intellectual stumbling block. I think a lot of people struggle with how, how do Christians make a claim to be the only way to God? I mean, that just seems so that seems so narrow that seems so arrogant that seems bigoted like like that there's one way and you guys have figured it out or you guys have a claim on it like and so there's this intellectual wrestling but we all have these stumbling blocks we encounter these stumbling blocks if we wrestle with them ourselves and and so we know that there are things that that hold us up all right that doesn't mean all right I don't want you guys to hear me wrong like I, I'm not if you've heard me dog like intellectualism like that's not at all what I'm saying. Like I think we should pursue education at the highest levels. I think that we should study, I think we should wrestle with questions. I think when when people have stumbling blocks or objections that they have that like there are good answers for us to study and seek out, but we need to know that at the end of the day like we can't control their response. So let's do our job think through things well and communicate that and, and love on people. But at the end of the day, like we can't change their response and make it one that's positive or not positive. All right, look at verse 24. He says, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, he says, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, power and wisdom. These are these are two important words. When we think about this, this worldly wisdom that says, I don't need God, I'm fine without him. Like, I'm good without God, I can do this thing on my own, I'm just fine. Generally, when we think about our problems, and we already mentioned this, when we talk about our problems, we think that either power or wisdom can solve them. That either if there's a problem, we're strong enough to power through, or we're smart enough to think through it. And so if you you look at this within politics, right, like you you take a situation that's happening... Um, nationally or internationally and generally the response from one side or the other is, well, let's just come in with our force and let's show it. Like we're more powerful, we can fix this. Or other people think, well, no, no, like we, can, we can think through it. Let's, let's show our wisdom and our smarts and our intelligence. And what we see is like, we think that with problems that we're either strong enough or smart enough to get through it. And, and what we see here is that when it comes to our sin, that no one's powerful enough and no one's smart enough to fix it. When you think about the gap between us and God, no one's, no one's strong enough to do enough good things to climb that moral ladder and no one's smart enough to, to reach this kind of intellectual enlightenment to know God in a relational way. Like this is a gap that is impossible for us to bridge on our own. So when it says that Christ is our power and Christ is our wisdom, what he's saying is only Jesus has the power to forgive our sins and to bring us into relationship with God. And only Jesus has the ability to give us wisdom or to give us knowledge relationally of God. And so he's our way to God, to, to be in a right relationship with him. And he's our way to know God in relationship as well. So we hope in Christ. Verse 25, says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men. That the weakness of God is stronger than men. Then verse 26 says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So what's happening here in verses 18 through 25, Paul is building a case to say like, we don't need to change the gospel, right? Like, this is our hope. Our hope doesn't lie in things that we can do, but in what Christ has done. Like we don't change that, right? Now he knows that there's this temptation that the Corinthians are dealing with where they're looking around and thinking, well, do I need to adjust this? Do I need to tweak this? Do I need to doctor it up to make it more acceptable, more attractive, more relevant in our society? And, and so they're starting to doubt the power of the gospel, right? They're starting to to doubt whether or not the gospel can be effective as is. And so now in verses 26 through 30, 31, what Paul's going to do is he's going to say, I want to, I want to give you guys a case study. I I, want to, I want to defend what I've talked to you about. I've told you in verses 18 through 25 that the gospel is powerful enough on its own. Let me, let me defend that for you. And so the way that he's going to defend this is by calling them to look in the mirror. He goes, look, look in the mirror. Like when you first came to Christ, he goes, you weren't exactly the who's who of society right like when you look when you think about how god called you it's not because you were special god didn't look at you and think man if if that guy gave his life to me then think about all the things i could do through his platform saying like, you guys weren't exactly of noble birth You guys weren't rich. You guys weren't like the most intellectually respected by worldly standards. He goes, you guys weren't the who's who and and God chose you. The gospel worked and transformed you. Verse 27 says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Have you ever found yourself thinking if God would save this person think of what he could do? I mean like if if Bill Gates came to Christ, think about how we can leverage all of those financial resources for the good of God's kingdom or if if this athlete um, came to Christ and, and this person has a public platform every Sunday, like think about if, if people if they, if this person if looked at them and saw Jesus, think about what God could do and it 's really easy to fall into this temptation of thinking, man, like if God would save them because of their potential, then he could do an amazing work. And what Paul's saying here is he's saying, look, the the case or the proof of the powerfulness of the gospel is that you've seen it at work and that God didn't choose you because of your potential. Like God didn't choose you because of your potential. In fact, God has a way of working or he generally works where he chooses the person who has no potential so that he can flex his power in a more amazing way that people be like, man, you chose that guy? Right? Like when he picks Abraham, when he picks David, I mean, just throughout Scripture, we see him taking the people who no one would look up to and doing incredible things through them. All right? Verse 30. This is is an incredible verse, verses 30 and 31. It says, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. All right? So he's reminding them, he says, This is what the gospel has done in your life. Who. became to us, I'm gonna just, if, you, if you're a Bible underliner, a Bible circler, a Bible marker upper, I would encourage you to, to hold on to these promises. In Christ, who became to us wisdom, I'd underline that or circle it, from God, righteousness, underline or circle that, sanctification and redemption. He's saying, look, if you're doubting the powerfulness of the gospel and the powerfulness of God to work through you and the message you have to change the world that you're in, start by looking how God has worked in you, right? When you see how God has worked in you, you're gonna have a greater confidence to see how God is gonna be able to work through you. So when it says that, that Jesus is our wisdom, saying that through Christ, we have knowledge of who God is. It's only through Jesus that we can know God. When it says that in Christ, we, <clears throat> excuse me, that in Christ we, we have righteousness, all right, that, we, that we have righteousness. He's saying that it's only through Jesus that we are right with God. That we have confidence that our standing with God is in a right place. When it talks about sanctification, he's saying that in Christ, God is continually cleansing you of your sin and your mistakes. When it says that in Christ you have redemption, he's saying that Jesus has bought you back. That there was a time when, when sin controlled your life. Where the things that you did were ultimately driven by the sin condition of your heart. And, and that way, you were enslaved to that. But when Jesus redeems you, it says that he purchases you back, that he pays the price to free you. And then he claims you as his own so that God looks at you no longer as a slave, but as his child that you are now a child of God. And so when you start to think through, this is what the gospel has done in me. It's helped me to know God. It's helped me to be right with God. It's, it's continually cleansing me of the mistakes that I'm making. And, it, and it's, it's claiming over me that, that I'm no longer a slave, but that I'm his child. Like that puts in us a confidence to say, okay, if God can do that in me, if God can change my heart, and I look at where I once was and where I am now, then I have this incredible confidence so that God can work through me to change the heart of others in the world. That's what we boast in. We don't boast in in a a more clever message or a more clever method. We boast in the power of the gospel to make change happen. In chapter 2, Verses one through five, Paul's going to, to show what this looks like in his own life. So he starts off by, by saying, don't change the gospel. Let me show you why with your own life. And now he's gonna show how it works out in his own. He says, and I, when I came to you brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He's, he's not dogging well-crafted speeches that help to communicate better. Like his whole, if you read his letters, I mean, he has a lawyer's logic. He lays things out strategically and well thought out. All right, so Paul's not against education. He's not against thinking through and preparing well, but there is this culture, um, this art of speech-making in Corinth where the end goal was to win the applause of the audience, where the end goal was to be liked and and to have favor with those in the crowd. And he's saying, look, if... If, my, if I entertain you, if I hold your attention and if I say something and at the end you like me, but you lose your soul, then what good has that been? So he says, like, my, my goal is not to entertain you. My goal is to speak truth. And he says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul's not saying that every message was an Easter message. Right, he's not like, I only preach Jesus being crucified. Like, he, like the whole book of Corinthians like, is, is things other than that. Right? But what he's saying is no matter what I preach, it ultimately points back to Jesus that you can't, but he can. Then in verses three and following, it says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. That's encouraging. Even Paul was a little bit freaked out about the ministry God called him to. And he says, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He's saying, look, my, my confidence in the gospel's impact isn't in what I bring to the table. My confidence in gospel impact is in God and him doing them possible. Bringing people who are spiritually dead to spiritual life. All so so let's just kind of wrap this up. Let's bring this this home and and why this is important. And that's a a lot of information to to wade through. The truth is that that God designed the church to be this this powerful force to display his goodness and his love to the world. Okay, that's the way that God's designed his church to be. We're, We're meant to be this powerful force to display his goodness and his love. And, and sometimes we can look at the impact we're having or not having and step back and think, okay, this should look a little bit differently. Things, things have to change, all right? Um, if you look at the book of Acts, like, like, so if you read the Bible, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these four gospels, and then Acts is the, the, the basically the, the local church starting and, and spreading. It's the Acts of the Apostles and the, the, the life of the early church you will see that they dedicated themselves to some simple things like the apostles teaching, the breaking of bread and fellowship and prayer. And and it's a really simple method. And, and all of a sudden God is adding to their church by the thousands, like in 3000 came to Christ today and 5000 this week. And like, you're like, this is crazy. Right. And so it's really easy to to look and say, look, if, if we, if we did this thing, right, then thousands and thousands and thousands of people should be coming to Christ and this world should be changed to be better. And, and it's going to be like heaven on earth today, and, and we can we can see that and think that's how this thing's supposed to work out, and then step back and go, but it's not. Like, I'm looking at the world, and this thing looks pretty jacked up. I'm looking at the world and, and I'm thinking about how Jesus said it's finished. I'm going, it looks like darkness is still doing pretty good. Right? Like, so so what do we do with that? And what we see is is where act shows thousands and thousands and thousands of people coming to Christ. 1 Corinthians, specifically verses chapter 1, 18 through 2, 5, is kind of the counterbalance to that. Where Paul's showing us that, hey, like, we don't need to expect that everyone's going to always respond favorably. Some people don't. And so when you look at this and say, like, something's got to change, the change isn't in the message of the gospel, right? The change isn't we've got to be more creative in our marketing strategies. The change isn't we need to be better in our in our social media campaign. We've got to be, um, we have to have a a more sticky statements that people can tweet out after the service. The, you know, like we don't have to fall into this trap of thinking that the change needs to be to our methods. The change needs to be to get back to the truthfulness of the gospel and to hope in the message of Christ and what he has done on our behalf to rescue us. And as we get back to that, we can have this confidence that God's going to continue to work. And maybe it doesn't look like thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people responding favorably to the gospel. Maybe it looks like most people thinking we're foolish and some people finding life. But at the end of the day, our job isn't to change people's hearts. Our job isn't to manipulate responses. Our job is to be faithful. One of my favorite examples of that, and I'll I'll leave you guys with this. One of my favorite examples of this is, is John. Um, Jesus had 12 disciples, John was one of them. Jesus had an inner circle and John was part of that. But not only was John like one of Jesus's three closest friends, he was the one that Jesus loved, which means this, John's basically Jesus's best friend, okay? John is like Jesus's best friend, all right? He writes a gospel, which is his account of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, the ministry of Christ. And um, people, take it and distort it and completely misunderstand it. There's this, this religious influence called Gnosticism. We're not gonna go into that, but basically people started trying to figure out how do we take this message and make it fit with Gnostic beliefs? And so what they did is they started to, to tweak and change the gospel to fit with pop culture, okay? They started to tweak the gospel to make it acceptable, attractive, and relevant to what was then pop culture, so what does John do? He comes back, he adds the first 18 verses of his gospel and the last chapter of his gospel to refute that. And then he comes in and he adds 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which are letters that are basically commentaries clarifying exactly what he meant by what he said, right? Right? And so he wants to make sure that no one is distorting the purity of the gospel. He says that if you take something away or you add something to it, we rob it of the power it was meant to have. We can't change the gospel. Now, why is that significant? Why am I telling you guys this? Because if you look at Paul's ministry, okay, the apostle Paul who wrote 1 Corinthians, this guy has a legacy that leaves him. Like when he, when he leaves Behind him is guy after guy after guy and girl after girl after girl that was a part of his ministry that continued the work that he started. We see great apologists and defenders of the faith. We see great pastors. We see great churches. I mean, you see incredible things come from the lineage of Paul's ministry. John, who is Jesus' best friend, takes a stand for the purity of the gospel. And guess what happens to his church? It dies. There's no legacy left behind from John's church that we can trace historically. People have looked back and said, can we even call John a successful pastor? I mean, look at the legacy of his ministry. It just dies off. Like he took a stand for the period of the gospel and it it just goes silent on him. Can we call him a successful pastor? And the truth is, is that his concern wasn't success. It was faithfulness. And that should be our concern as well. We're called to be faithful and we can leave the success and the results in God's hands. So as we go and proclaim the beauty of Christ, in our lives and through our lives to a world that needs him, to a world that most likely will push back. We have confidence that some will respond and find life. We have confidence that God longs to invite us into what he's doing to show his power, but our calls not to get the results, our calls to be faithful to the message. God, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for men who have faithfully stood for the gospel for thousands of years. God, as we find ourselves falling into this trap of thinking that you need us to fix this thing or that we can change this or that and make some tweaks and that we're gonna be more relevant or if we could just ignore this thing and not mention it, then people might come your way. God, we know that we're already asking for you to do the impossible, to change people's lives, to to move them from death to life. And God, that's something that none of, our, none of our gimmicks can do, only the power of Christ in us and in you through you. But God, I ask that you would make Redeemer a church that's faithful. And God, we, we long for success. We wanna see you move. We wanna see thousands and thousands of people place their faith in you, God, but that's, that's not our job. Our job is to be faithful, so God, help us to be that. Help us to unify around the truths of the gospel. And God, let us take part in seeing what you're up to, to display your goodness and love to this town and to this world. It's your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this audio from Redeemer Community Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. You can connect with us and find out more information at RedeemerCommunity.com.